Hey folks, just wanted to say at the top of this episode that we had a bit of range in recording, so you might hear a little bit of background noise, perhaps a drop in audio quality in some places, uh, but Phil and I really enjoyed this conversation and we hope you do too. Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Observable Stream. Today, we're going to be looking at message systems with a focus on the two messaging systems, uh, Kafka and RabbitMQ. Uh, I'm joined once again by my co-host, Phil. Hey, Reagan. Nice to see you again. Very excited to uh, talk about messaging systems today. Um, yeah, just to start, would you be able to explain what messaging systems are? Message buses, there's many names for them, and perhaps give a motivation why we might want them in our software architecture systems. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, indeed, it's another component of uh, a modern application architecture. And its primary use case, I would say, is for just passing messages asynchronously between two services. I say services can be producers and consumers. Um, And there's a number of reasons why you'd want to do this asynchronously. So I guess the uh, common uh, counter to event passing or uh, message queues is REST. So that's where you directly will orchestrate or invoke another service by calling a fixed REST API. Uh, Events are a kind of dichotomy to that where you basically say, this is something that happened in my application or in my domain, or you know a user triggered some event, uh, and then I publish it on a message queue. And uh, then the message queue then feeds that, that message somehow to the consumers of that message. And of course, the space is very rich. Um, there's a ton of different message brokers, message queues, uh, event streaming systems, event streaming platforms. You can call them a bunch of different things um, because it's not actually that simple. So it's not just as simple as passing an asynchronous message between uh, one producer and a consumer. Um, there's many, many ways, there's many different flavors. Um, there's many different non-functional trade-offs between these different implementations of very, very abstractly message queues. Um, or event logs. I mean, you can call them all sorts of different things. Uh, but yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled to talk about them today because it's a super interesting and rich space uh, in tech. One of the things that that I've noticed sort of anecdotally is that the idea of a message system or a message bus, a message queue, mm-hmm. seems to be implemented at like every abstract abstraction level. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be one of these very core computer science ideas. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think we talked before actually about you can, you know, there are even programming models that are centered around message queues internally within a single application. Um, so there, there's not necessarily a separate broker that is a standalone service that's mediating messages. Instead, you have within an application, um, an event loop even is uh, is very much lending uh, from the world of message, message passing because, well, it's within an application. It's just a different threading model. You're just passing uh, events um, through through some sort of bus or a set or a queues or some connection between uh, one thread and another thread, uh, some data structure essentially. So that's where it becomes indeed like the most basic of implementations. And you have uh, in Java, for example, you have implementations such as Vertex that are all built around uh, uh, yeah event broking and within a single application. Um, and to other ones like Akka, for example, which has Scala and uh, and also Java uh, implementations. Uh, this is also very much centered around event passing, let's say, because ACA implements the actor model, which is a different way of implementing message passing, but nonetheless, um, a way. Uh, but yeah, we can uh, definitely get onto the, uh, probably the, the let's say, the low-level programming implementations of, of these, uh, and probably in another 10 different episodes all around these uh, programming languages. 
what I, what I found interesting is that like even if you go so deep as the idea of a bus goes like to the, the CPU level so you've got like a control bus and you've got a system bus so even from like a machine architecture point of view you've got this idea of message passing and I think that that indicates that it might just be a good solution to multiplexed components so if you've got a number of components and you want them all to communicate it makes sense to extract that communication into a central place yeah. um, we, 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 exactly. we'll be talking about sort of application level messaging systems which you have you have them at the level of the desktop application you've got something like dbus which is how desktop applications talk to one another through a, a standard operating system level message queue yeah, um, yeah on that actually the, the it, it's an interesting um interesting point you have these what are known as esbs uh, enterprise service buses and those are basically um service buses that allow the communication between multiple applications within an organization because the problem of integration is just inherently difficult um for me i'm not a it's very much from the corporate uh, enterprise well literally, literally got it in the names from the enterprise software building world and uh well if you can avoid this with well-structured rest apis or other abstractions or uh, just just better uh let's say canonical events um i think that's preferable but you have these esbs that are also basically okay i want to take this java application this net application i want to kind of fuse them together uh, with some event bus that's canonical, then uh, an ESB can like to do this. And of course, there's a bunch of different implementations and that that's sort of under the hood of indeed this uh, this idea of message queues. Mm. And you, you mentioned like we can achieve some, something similar, like the this is a sort of a replacement for REST style communication. Mm -hmm. And I guess one benefit for message queues is that you can, you can structure these messages with a schema. So unless you're using something like PACT to, to verify the contracts between your endpoints, there's really no structure that enforces that a certain web request needs to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. But if you package your um, event DTOs or your event schemas with your clients, mm -hmm. you can control exactly how messages are constructed. And so you can have some, some sort of certainty that the requests that are being made are well formulated or well, well constructed. Yeah, exactly. And that's another kind of layer of, um, uh, of tooling on top of the modern day event broker is the idea of a, a schema repository um, and schema validation, uh, and that's all very important when in the event passing world, the the, the message uh, queue world, because yeah, you have different versions of events. You need to maintain them. You need to uh, potentially still be publishing multiple versions and consuming multiple versions. You need to have schemas um, that define those those structures. Um, but it's yeah, schema. So a, a schema validation isn't behavioral in the sense that it's not telling you validate validate that we produce an event. Uh, on this interaction uh, and then it's consumed by this other service uh, that that's more in the realm of testing and behavioral testing and um, there you have well contract testing as well to also assert yes uh, my my if i if i call this rest endpoint um, then it's going to behave in a certain way uh, if i uh, if i pass it these parameters and these uh, these headers uh, and the same can be done for also for events um, the, the difference being is that you have a broker in between uh, so you have a literally a, a some centralized service that brokers the publishing and also the uh, the queuing and ultimately the, the the consumption for downstream consumers of of different events. To to illustrate message queues, we're going to be talking a bit about RabbitMQ and Kafka, and I know that they handle this very differently. The way that downstreams consume messages and whether or not um, they get replayed back or not. So, would you be able to, to contrast maybe? how Kafka and RabbitMQ are different as, as two exemplar 
messaging cues? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think a good thing to first dis- to discover, let's say in our podcast, is the idea of delivery semantics. Um, this is one of the core fundamental difference makers in, in message cues. And that is, what are the promises or guarantees for uh, the passing of an event to a, from a producer to a consumer um, with a certain cardinality or let's say with a certain assurance that it's only going to be delivered an N number of times. Um, so you have three different categories. You have at most once delivery. So this means that whenever you send a message from a producer uh, that a consumer will actually uh, never consume it more than once, but the messages may be lost on the way. And of course, there are certain branches of applications where you could deal with some event loss um, a lot of a lot of times you you can't deal with event loss, uh, and then you may prefer okay well at least once delivery is more in the realm of my uh, how my application can tolerate certain uh, so this this certain delivery semantics. So that means that at most once delivery means of course that you will never lose a message, but a message may be consumed more than once. Um, and then finally, the third one you can probably guess is exactly once delivery. That is the holy grail of messaging um, in that, well, literally all messages will be consumed exactly once. Uh, and there's a number of reasons as why that's really hard to achieve. Um, that's, not a, that's not a trivial, when you have a broker, a third, an external service that's mediating communication, then how do you ensure that that communication is exactly once? It's very, very difficult, especially when you have multiple consumers, you have multiple instances of the same consumers. Uh, they are going to fail. They're going to restart. They're going to fail over. They're going to need to pick up reading from some point. Um, they're going to need to, you know, we can get slowly onto the idea of uh, difference between RabbitMQ and, and Kafka, uh, whether you, uh, how do you acknowledge messages? Um, how do you uh, consume batches of messages? Uh, and another producer as well, like how do you confirm that the message has actually been handled by the broker properly uh, or by the exchange? Um, but yeah, in general, it's no, it's no trivial task. And that makes also then uh, all of the systems, all of the message brokers that we know, so like RabbitMQ, Kafka, ActiveMQ, uh, Azure, uh, Azure uh, EventBus, there's, you know, there's, there's a huge range of them. That's literally just probably talking about 0.001% of all of them out there. Um, there are so many functional and non-functional properties and difference makers, uh, which is why the space is so rich. Um, yeah, so we can get onto a bit of a uh, bit of uh, RabbitMQ, um, and uh, talk there about well. So RabbitMQ is from this uh, AMQP family. This is a actually a standard uh, of uh, advanced message queue protocol, um, and what it sets out to do is to find a standard for uh, these systems uh, based on exactly what methods, functionality, and how the architecture is laid out for a message queue system. Um, to give you. Uh, the opposite, RabbitMQ uh, implements, sorry, not to give you the opposite, but Kafka, uh, it does not follow the AMQP standard, uh, but uh, RabbitMQ does, ActiveMQ does, StormMQ, uh, and also Azure Event Bus and Service Hubs. Um, they all follow this AMQP standard. Uh, and it's actually an application and a network protocol as well. Um, so it defines not only just the uh, architecture in terms of how uh, the uh, how the uh, application layer protocol is handled in the in the ecosystem um, and how it's invoked, but also the actual network layer protocol um, for sending the actual you know uh, by, let's say closer to the metal bytes over the wire um, to the producers from the producers to the uh, broker and also the of course the broker to the consumers. Um, it's actually quite similar to uh, Stomp, which is the streaming text oriented message protocol, um, and 
in AMQP, they define a few very basic primitives in the standard, uh, which basically set the tone for all of the implementations like RabbitMQ. So those are exchanges. An exchange is essentially the, uh, well, the message exchanges where you publish messages to. Um, so if you're a producer, you publish directly to an exchange and it has a certain exchange name. Uh, exchange has, they also have different types. So of course, when you're constructing a, uh, an event-driven ecosystem, there's many different, uh, well, delivery, delivery semantics is one of the things, but also uh, your cardinality of your publisher and subscribers. So do you want to send this message to just one subscriber or do you want to send it to all subscribers? Um, and there's a difference there depending on your use case, of course. Um, so those types are fan out, which is very much a pub sub. Um, you're basically spreading out this event to all of the, you're fanning out to all of the subscribers. And you also have direct, so this is really directly to one single consumer. And then you also have topic, which is essentially, I want to listen to uh, this set, subset of events. Uh, and you can define a queue, which is basically, I want this these, these events of this certain format or this certain name um, to be routed to me, um, which is allows you some kind of control in between the fan out and the direct uh, exchanges. Then you have message queues. Okay, well, you see you're publishing events to an exchange, but of course, the consumers need to consume it from somewhere and they consume it from a queue. And this is where the queue in RabbitMQ, AMQP come from, comes from. And those are basically bound to exchanges by using bindings, which is basically just the relationship between a queue and an exchange. And queues are giving RabbitMQ the name because this is where the ordering guarantees live. So if you want messages to be consumed in a certain order, as they are published to, then this is where the guarantees you get from a queue ordering is. So it's essentially just a data structure that orders events in a certain way, such that you can be sure that when you publish to uh, an exchange and it's routed to one of the queues, that it's going to be in the same um, in the same order as they were submitted. And this is obviously useful for a number of different reasons why you want to build an application that orders events. And but that's not to say you can't use it in to make unordered systems as well, because you can of course have multiple consumers. Uh, bound to the same exchange, listening to the same event uh, on two different queues. And of course, your application behavior is going to determine which one consumes the, the event first. Um, but there are ways to achieve, uh, let's say, single, uh, well, what's called a single active consumer, which is just a single instance listening to uh, the queue. And consuming it in order means that you can very much get this like very much chronological ordering of events. Then you have messages, so the headers and the content, not less interesting, but that's essentially what you're sending. That's your payload. You can put uh, you can put whatever you want in there, uh, as long as it's a byte array uh, for the content. And the headers are also a uh, predefined set of headers. And you can also pass your own headers, but those are what basically control the behavior of, of queues um, with some specifications in AMQP itself and some just in RabbitMQ. And then you have a connection and a channel. Those are kind of like the, yeah, well, the the, um, let's say the, the, the real communication, uh, meat and vegetables. So that's uh, a connection is just a, um, a connection from the broker, sorry, from the queue, uh, which is managing the, sorry, the broker, which is managing then the queues to the consumer itself. And then within every connection, you have multiple channels because it basically does virtual connections in, uh, in a single channel, uh, to be more efficient. And there are even transactions. Now, that's a really cool uh, topic that we can get onto later. Um, but that's the kind of broad overview of like the AMQP uh, uh, ecosystem. And RabbitMQ pretty much follows everything to the, I think, to the 1.0 standard of AMQP. 
Uh, some things it still uses the, I think the uh, um, 0.91 standard, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, transactions is also within the standard. Um, so yeah, within a queue, uh, you can have transactionality, which is, of course can be quite important to make sure that you know you handle um, uh, you, you handle uh, the consumption of events as a, as a transaction to make sure that you know if it fails, then you can still recover uh, and revert uh, to the previous state. Um, and yeah, there's many more details. Maybe uh, maybe that's probably a good enough of an introduction to RavenaQ. Sure. You you mentioned that um, that MQP is both like a application level protocol and also a byte level protocol, mm -hmm. and I guess that differentiates it from things like JMI or a lot of different languages Im implement a sort of basic messaging interface. Yeah. Um, but but whereas this also describes how messaging looks, it also describes how it should work, which yeah. I think is is quite cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a good analogy or a metaphor to use for understanding messaging is kind of like an email newsletter service where you've got some, you've got newsletters, say that are, are on programming topics, so you've got, you know, emails or, or news that's, that's related to JavaScript, you've got news that's related to Java, you maybe you've got even broader topics like news related to AI or, or these yeah, big sure. uh, cross language topics. And so people can be subscribed to one or more of those. and. A broker or a central mail server needs to decide who to send a given email to based on a number of topics and I think that maps quite nicely to what you're describing with um, RabbitMQ where, you, exactly. where you're sort of a broker can can push to many different queues based on sort of routing keys so if, yes. if I have the routing key of AI I need to send it to all the people who are subscribed to AI and maybe even machine learning and you, you might have a hierarchy of different topics that people can subscribe to. Yeah. You actually highlight a very important point there as well uh, that maybe I didn't cover is that exchanges and queues are essentially disjunct or disconnected um, uh, parts of the AMQB protocol. If you send a message, there is no uh, necessary guarantee or it's not a synchronous call to make sure that a consumer is then consuming the message like it is in REST. It's completely asynchronous. Uh, there's a binding which binds the exchanges or, and routes the, the then the uh, the messages to your AI topic or to your JavaScript topic or to your Java topic, but the producer at that point is kind of left is, is out of the equation. It's all it's all asynchronous. And like an like an email service, sometimes you can send emails that don't get to people. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you put in the wrong email address, there might be a failure. Mm -hmm. And often from from like a user perspective, if you're in Gmail or something, you'll get a an email back saying that there was a failure of delivery. And this also reveals a, a, a similar topic in message queues in that you have many different approaches that you can use for message failures so mm -hmm. in in rabbitmq it's a it, it's often a fire and forget system so you you're pushing an event and if no one there is, is listening mm -hmm. uh, that just gets lost mm -hmm. but there are cases in which there are use cases in which you don't want to lose that message yeah. and so you can introduce something what, what is often termed a dead letter queue, mm. which is where failures get uh, added to a separate queue and then um, you can subscribe to that at a later stage if maybe you've had an application failure or a restart or you're, for any number of reasons you won't be able, you weren't able to consume that message. Mm. Um, you can also, with those delivery uh, semantics, you can build in intelligence into these queues so that uh, they keep sort of an offset and that when, when someone begins listening, you can say, do you want to replay these from the beginning of history mm -hmm. or do you just want to get the latest um, and, and that yeah. links up to another strategy within uh, application development this idea of event sourcing mm -hmm. and, uh, and and that comes out of the idea that if you're looking at these central queues they become kind of like the backbone of an application the, mm -hmm. the backbone backbone of your 
your whole enterprise. Uh, if you can observe the messages that are being put on these queues, you can get a you can sort of reverse engineer what might be happening with the internal state of those agents that are collaborating. And event sourcing is the idea that you can at any point replay your messages from a fixed state and you can end up with the the outcome state. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like a pure functional a really beautiful sort of programming idea where mm -hmm. you can given a, a, a state and a set of events you can make very hard guarantees about w what the end state will be yeah. and that's quite useful for transactions it's quite useful for rolling back and taking snapshots um, and that can be very useful for distributed applications yeah absolutely that's a really interesting topic um indeed that then to, to put it to rabbitmq rabbitmq you can't really use well i mean let me say out of the box revenue queue you can't use for event sourcing and even with all the bells and whistles um, maybe you should probably shouldn't do any either um, because it, it, it yeah first if you're if you're going to do event sourcing you need to make a really firm decision that non-functionally it's very important to have an audit log in your ecosystem it's very important to have transactions uh, that you can roll back to it's very important to have uh, explainability um, you know of states of a given entity at a certain given point in time uh, and yes, if you're planning on rolling back a lot and to a specific version of uh, the state of something, then absolutely, it's a it's a great uh, it's it's a great uh, idea. Um, but it is indeed different. You know, what is event driven is not event sourced, and what is event sourced is is well, typically event driven. Uh, I guess depending on how you define event driving. Um, but yeah, it's a very interesting it's a very interesting um, architectural pattern. And in itself is not is you know there are many different implementations. I think one of the most most famous ones is CQRS, um, which is the command query responsibility segregation, where you basically have indeed your commands, which are events. That those are all events, and then your querying still doesn't happen on the events themselves, but happens in a ternary data store that basically aggregates the state of those events into something that you can use uh, in a database, and that's immutable. So you can't then you can't write using a query. You can only you can only query. So it's only a a, a a data query language it's not a data modification language um, but you have then two separate sources um, uh, data stores so you have your event processing system for you know doing the event sourcing um, to retain all remember you need to retain all the events unless you want to do snapshot aggregation where you discard previous you can also discard previous events um, but usually philosophically you should, or, or let's say best practice wise you should keep the entire state in case you need to also uh, make amends or fix, you know, do back migrations on the events. Although, what is it in CQRS? You know, migrations are a big problem, right? Like your your commands are going to change in the in in how they look over time. You you can't say from day one I'm going to develop you know these commands, which maybe just update field with this value to this to this value. Uh, so really very simple and atomic kind of uh, uh, commands. They still may change, uh, and you still may need to have online migrations to migrate those. Uh, that becomes quite a, quite a challenge, uh, and in RabbitMQ, let's for example, it's not it's not a durable queue uh, in that it's durable for restarts. So if the broker dies and restarts, it actually will serialize the uh, the state of the queues to disk and recover them. So great, you know your you know if your if if the broker does die, then you can still recover your application. You can still recover the queues, um, but it won't store indefinitely. So it doesn't have indefinite persistence. It's not a database in that regard. Um, however, there is now, in, since RabbitMQ uh, 3.9, you do actually have um, streams, uh, which is a pretty cool idea. 
Uh, it supports like large fan outs, so streams can have like a bunch of different consumers. Uh, it also keeps offsets. Now we're going to start to segue into a little bit on how this uh, works uh, in in uh, Kafka as well. Um, it's a, it's supposedly th very performant, um, and it can support large logs, uh, so just like Kafka. Uh, and it retain yeah, basically uh, stream retention is also configurable to the size of the stream you want to retain. So do I want to retain entire history of all the events or only say ten gigabytes of uh, of events? Um, and in the same way uh, as Kafka, you can actually start from the latest or a specific offset as a consumer. So you can say, just, I want to start listening from now. I, there's a Twitter stream and I don't care about all the tweets that came before, but uh, for my application to, to use, but just about what's going to happen from now uh, onwards. But if you say wanted to source all Twitter events, then you could, if as long as all the Twitter events were actually on the RabbitMQ stream, then you could start right from the beginning offset zero and read from the very first tweet ever made uh, all the way to the latest tweet. Or let's use your email example. You can like do or have all of your emails for all of the topics that you wanted to subscribe to since the beginning of time, and then you can replay them all. So your application may be interested in, I don't know, reading them all for some machine learning algorithm that then uses the latest state to do some, uh, after it's trained, to then do some uh, uh, online uh, recommendation or online prediction. Um, that's all possible now in 3.9 of RevenueQ with an extension called, well, you guessed it, Streams. Um, but it's a question in, for you, Reagan, is this, as a trend, let's say more abstractly, if you know, RabbitMQ is, is at the heart following this very strict AMQP protocol. It's designed for a very specific set of uh, use cases for passing messages. Is that just not inherently different from what's required of a stream processing? That's an interesting question uh, because it, it sounds like we're approaching the idea of like an ETL pipeline stream where, where you've got different applications and you're sort of piping data through them and, and it feels like we're describing a cross-application reactive program. We've got like a stream which may or may not be cached yeah. and we want to pipe those through certain functions and that, that's kind of like your map operation. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not the, the idea of this AMQP protocol, I think, I think it was written in 2003, I don't know if, if we mentioned that, but like the, the fact that all of these different, this consortium of uh, business stakeholders came together and said, okay, this is how we're going to do messaging. And then mm -hmm. Kafka comes and does their own thing. Um, <laughs> it feels it feels like the, the pattern through history is that someone makes like a vague, very self-congratulatory protocol name, like advanced message queue. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. And then yeah. from, from the numbers I was looking at online in, in researching for this podcast, it seems that Kafka has roughly like a two orders of magnitude higher throughput than RabbitMQ. And I don't know if that changes with the new stream. Mm. Um, and I don't know how those numbers were established either. I, sh I, should, well, yeah, I, should, I should just say that off, uh, off the bat, whether it makes sense to make the distinction between stream processing systems and message queues. I think that a lot of organizations accidentally stumble into a message queue implementation. So you mentioned earlier that the, the scope or the, the ecosystem of message queues is massive. Yeah. And I think a reason for that is that it's quite easy to start making a message queue. Mm -hmm. I think that any ambitious software engineer could write a basic um, message queue in an afternoon. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the message queues in the wild are actually just SQL databases that people are atomically reading and in okay. inserting onto. Yeah, then a chain stream or something mm. from the database. And so I think the, I think message queue is m much more of a abstract concept than necessarily a stream processing 
um, system. Mm -hmm. I think of stream processing as being, being a very concrete thing like Spark or uh, whereas a message queue, you can almost look at, I don't know, you can think of, I mentioned email, but like email is the message queue of humans. And it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's more, a, it's, I think it's more of a pattern Mm -hmm. uh, where, where message queues are a pattern, I think that stream processing systems are more like a, a more like an a, a trend or more, more like an application. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm saying. More like an application level. Okay. So whereas message queues are, are more like a design pattern, I think of stream processing systems more like a product, mm -hmm. and where it's just a yeah. it's a very um, it's a subset of the greater uh, message queue right. world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. I think there's um, so I don't want to make it too broad of a statement here, but I feel that RabbitMQ is going to have a harder time maybe of getting traction in the stream processing world than than Kafka can in the message queue world. Um, so Ma Kafka can model similar semantics to RabbitMQ um, with, of course, retention. And of course, you can configure retention to be... You can also use Ka Kafka as a completely non-retaining uh, event log if you really to say like, okay, well, I can't consume any message. You, you can't look back and consume messages beyond uh, today or beyond the last hour or whatever. Um, uh, but you can achieve maybe with also a kind of intermediary application, uh, something similar to, to a RabbitMQ broker. Um, and I think that, yes, well, there's like, as you said, you know, the ANQP protocol was a consortium of, uh, of organizations that came together in 2003 and Kafka wasn't, uh, actually developed in until, uh, well, 2012, I think at LinkedIn, uh, 2011, actually, I think. And it's come along with a different, you know, in a different era. It is, okay. It's, you know, it's uh, nine years later. It's not a huge difference, but, um, but in tech, we all know that things can move fast in nine years. Um, the requirements at LinkedIn were very different to the requirements of, you know, these uh, more um, slow-moving corporate, like IT corporations back then, uh, that needed just to define, okay, I need a standard for my for sending messages to between uh, services uh, in a service-oriented architecture. Um, yeah, I, I think then, um, you know, the world has of, of tech has defined a new set of requirements for event streaming. Um, you know, the exact difference maker, I think is sometimes hard to define indeed, like what's the difference really between a message queue and a, a stream processing system. Um, uh, and you know, before that, even like you said, we had, we didn't have message queues, but maybe we even just used databases and they just scaled fine for the throughput that we needed. Um, you, you see Mongo and Postgres, they have changed streams uh, implemented in the, uh, in, in the database, um, core itself so you can write to a table and then also have a application that listens to a stream of updates from the table um for postgres for example you can just sit there and listen to uh to do like either uh, row level replication or you can do uh, you can listen to the right head log which is a very much more lower level but nonetheless you can listen to a stream of data that comes in um and then basically replicate it or do something with that data um and yeah, you can even list. You can even specify. Okay, I just want to listen to this um, table, for example. Only this, the updates on this table, or I want to just have this query, and then it's basically just a continually polling query on that table um, to say, you know, give me the updated results from this query as a change stream. And yeah, then then how you model and develop 
streaming applications um, then change a bit as to whether you use a database or whether you use Kafka, which you could argue anyway is a sort of database um, because it guarantees uh, ACID uh, properties um, for, for topics. Um, so it does have isolation. Uh, it does have consistency and durability uh, and atomicity as well. Um, you can have it store an indefinite amount of log entries. And now you even have like bells and whistles like KSQL DB, which is a SQL query language on top of a topic. Uh, or well, let's say not on top of a topic. It's a separate application that replicates topics and then queries them. Um, and uh, there you can query them in SQL. So as if you're like writing literally a streaming SQL query. Uh, and the two look very similar now. Um, writing a uh, writing a chain stream query for Postgres, let's say, or Mongo, and writing a KSQL DB query for Kafka. But the architecture that underlies uh, these systems are very different and they lend themselves differently to whether or not you write to a log, which essentially Kafka does, or whether you're writing to a like a row heap storage like Postgres does. Um, those are ultimately going to give you different uh, scaling behavior and, uh, and, and also, you know, delivery semantics and all the rest. Um, and how you implement transactions over that is going to be different. Um, but yeah, I think... There's not always an, an easy divide between these things, um, but I do see that, that you know there is a growth in the requirements for these kind of systems in the world of tech. So clickstream analytics, for example, is something we didn't do in 2003. Um, you know, you want uh, event sourcing. It's also something you probably didn't really think about doing in 2003. Um, you want probably a bunch of other non-functional requirements of your systems now. Uh, ETL pipelines, for example, something with a streaming ETL, uh, also an interesting one. Uh, maybe we didn't do as much of this back in 2003, or I can't speak definitely to that. Um, but yeah, these things are emerging. And then RabbitMQ is, of course, wanting to stay relevant outside of just the world of uh, of simple message queues. Um, and then adopting something like this. And my question is really, I'm not a, I can't read Erlang. So I've not, I've, I've scanned the code base very quickly, but I am, you know, it's, by the way, RabbitMQ is implemented in Erlang. Uh, Kafka is in Java. So maybe it's a little bit more easy for me to read. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I have no idea architecturally how they're achieving this. And it's definitely going to be interesting to see the first adoptions of RabbitMQ streams. Like, I'm really interested to see how that turns out. I'd be curious to see how the, the language that was used to implement these message queues informs how they, be, how they behave. So Erlang mm. is somewhat of a niche language, but it's got this reputation of being quite good for concurrent systems. I think yeah. WhatsApp's famously implemented in it and a number of different um, telecoms mm -hmm. applications. Exactly. Um, I wonder if, it, it doesn't seem that way, but I wonder if uh, Kafka being built on the JVM necessarily limits it in any way. Hmm, good question. Um, yeah, I, I, I would love to be able to answer that. Uh, to be honest, I've not dug around the source code of, of uh, either extensively, as I mentioned, but it, yeah, it would be interesting. Um, you know, this, what I, what I, you know, this is very high level, high level statement again, but uh, it, it's almost... Um, for me, it's almost like a poster boy of showing that Java is actually a performant language because Kafka, we all, we all know Kafka scales. Uh, depending on your requirements, of course, your delivery semantic scales very, very well uh, as a, for an, as a essentially a, a semi-distributed event log. However you want to call this thing, um, it scales super well. Uh, there is some legacy in Kafka. Um, for example, Zookeeper. Uh, this is the Apache um, basically distributed systems orchestrator. It works with a number of different Apache products, but Kafka is one of them. And it basically is the metadata manager for all things Kafka. So Kafka 
up until version three can't manage defining its own topics and partitions uh, and also uh, leadership uh, in a in a replica set uh, which all these are very important things for databases and for distributed systems of course um, until three which are there replacing this with the with this uh, kip 500 uh, k raft protocol um, which is essentially uh, one of the uh, yeah and also metadata management using the quorum controller it's called um, so everything is now done internally uh, leaders are elected internally um, leaders of the of a Kafka cluster are elected internally also defining partitions and uh, uh, number of partitions per topic um, maybe we should actually go and explain a bit what uh, what a topic and a partition mean uh, we've got ahead of ourselves a bit um, but yeah all of that's going to be done now in uh, within Kafka and yeah, I think that's just showing that they are, they're still, I mean, it's a really rapid, it's still a really, you know, rapidly growing area in technology. Uh, and I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. I find it a little bit sad that they're moving away from Zookeeper mm. because the the sense I get is that Zookeeper was meant to be this like base level platform for distributed consensus. Yes. And so there's a number of different applications you can build once you have consensus as an a priori mm. uh, concept you can build a number of applications very easily on top of that yeah. and so it, I, I, it was very ambitious of them to, i think yahoo initially created zookeeper it could be, yeah. I, I think they might have but it just seems like there could have been more done and with with zookeeper and perhaps the, the, the kafka moving off zookeeper mm. is, is kind of like maybe one sign that it's that's a, it, it's a dying in, initiative but I think it would it could be cool to consider a system where you get consensus out of the box, and then you can build things like peer-to-peer messaging, and you can build like BitTorrent-style uh, communication, just just uh, concerned with the commu- communication itself rather than like leadership election and um, you know failures, t- temporal exactly. uh, temporal agents. I think it is. I see where you're coming from. Uh, it's. It's inherent to the problem, but it's not a problem that needs to be resolved necessarily. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, the the way in which you design your message broker architecture, um, you know, ninety five percent of them are going to require that you have a, a, you want a replica set, so you want a leader and you want some some secondaries as well. Um, you want replication. You want some system that also manages the metadata and and uh, kind of orchestrates and defines uh, uh, and invokes the the leaders to do certain behaviors and, and this followers to do certain other behaviors um and that's kind of a generic problem to all distributed systems i agree um but yeah peer-to-peer for example is indeed a, i guess a, sep- a different way uh, you know there's there are of course in 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 these topologies there's you know multi-leader topologies single leader topologies there's uh, no leader topologies so you, you just have secondaries um uh, but yeah it's it, it is an interesting one i, I my experience with zookeeper was from university was just struggling to get it to work with the uh and and this is some of the maybe the um some of the open source projects back then which we were uh, investigating uh, and, and building upon um not going to name uh, not going to blame or name anything but uh, just remember it being uh, yeah more one of the more trickier uh, aspects of working with these distributed systems it wasn't kafka or it wasn't anything that popular um but yeah that's that's completely anecdotal um, so it could have been that you know my naivety as a, a, a and uh, lack of experience as a junior was not uh, yeah I understood these concepts on a high level but just never really got my head like wrapped around how to work with the thing um, 
and I guess the communities also feels the same way because they're moving away from Zookeeper and uh, and everyone's celebrating that. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I think it's also a sign of, as well, taking one step back, that Kafka's becoming probably something uh, greater than its Apache roots. Uh, well, not Apache roots, of course. It got adopted by Apache. It was originally from LinkedIn, developed by Martin Kleppman uh, and the gang. And um, yeah, I... I since then, there have been many big cloud providers such as Confluent, Karafka, and Avian, who are all developing their own ecosystem around Kafka set of tools. Confluent's developing KSQLDB, as I mentioned before. Um, and uh, yeah, these these managed services are also bringing stuff to the next level. They're bringing offerings to the table in a similar way, um, I guess, that you have, you know, Amazon uh, bringing, well, this uh, can, can, can also be a, uh, a controversial topic about how Amazon's uh, treating the open source world at this point. Um, uh, but they are also taking open source projects or snapshots of them, and then they're uh, building the base of their own branches of them, following the kind of core underpinnings and then building, you know, the next latest versions. I think at least I like the thing I like about what Kafka's doing is that it's still, uh, it's still a, a project run by Apache. Um, but but it's extensible enough that these organizations are able to bring stuff on top of it, but not necessarily take the code base and uh, revamp it and sell it as a separate product. Um, that, and the same way, RabbitMQ is also very extensible as well. So I think I like both of these systems because they are both extensible. The fact that you can build streams into RabbitMQ as a plugin is pretty amazing. Like that's the, how they how they work with this architecture. I think that's nice that you can do this. The question is whether it scales. Um, I don't, you know, Kafka has uh, is is a bit similar in that way that you can build applications on top of it that behave in certain ways, but you don't really need to necessarily go into the uh, core code base and refactor and remodel things um, to achieve KSQLDB, for example. Maybe there needs to be. I don't know. You know, KSQLDB is scales to a certain degree. I don't. I never. I've used it very very sparingly, but um, don't know how it scales really under massive production load. Um, and also in terms of costs and overheads, yeah, it's uh, it's you can imagine this doing these SQL query languages over a stream is not going to be cheap. Um, there's also companies like Materialize um, who are doing something very similar to K- uh, KSQLDB. They can also integrate by taking Kafka topics and then running your SQL DSL over it to query the the multiple topics as if they were separate tables. You can do stream joins. You can do table to stream joins. So you can take a Postgres table on one side and you can join it with the Kafka topic on the other side. Uh, and it's kind of gluing these systems together as if they are relational databases, which is pretty, a pretty I, I find it a pretty fascinating idea. And you, you mentioned this, the idea of tooling and, and the ecosystem that maybe Confluence and other companies are building around Kafka. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I've worked with Kafka in the past, I found that it had less, less of a tooling ecosystem than RabbitMQ. So with RabbitMQ, you, it comes with like a management console yeah. prepackaged, but when for me, Kafka is much more of a black box where you've got like a console consumer and a console producer and you just see messages pass through them. Yeah. But um, I don't know, are they, have you encountered any like dashboarding or any monitoring systems for Kafka? Uh, because I, 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 haven't found it any com- I haven't found any comprehensive solution for that. Yeah, so Confluent has the Confluent platform. Uh, and I think Kafka has a very similar thing, uh, which is as well a set of uh, operational dashboards for Kafka. Um, however, there are Kafka Prometheus exporters, uh, and then you can build your own dashboards in Grafana or whatever you front end you want to put in front of Prometheus. And I, 
I think that's the way that I would lend, lean towards. Um, get the exports, you know, export. There are there are a bunch of different open source exporters as well. Um, you know, there are Prometheus ones, uh, but there's also ones for InfluxDB and all these uh, uh, other ones. And LinkedIn have their own. Um, I can't remember what it's called now, uh, but they, uh, it's called Buzz something, I think. Um, but anyway, they, you know, yeah, the, the community is still building these tools. Um, for the, as for the command line tools and the, and the admin and management tools, yes, RabbitMQ admin is the is the like the command line interface for managing RabbitMQ, and it is pretty extensive. Um, and you also have a bunch of other tools that are, that come out of the box. Um, they're called plugins, but they you have like tier one plugins which are all like built into the or they ship with uh, the RabbitMQ binaries, uh, such as RabbitMQ Prometheus is a tier one um, uh, uh, plugin. Also, you have RabbitMQ Shovel. Uh, which is also an important one. You know, you want to if you're managing queues and you want to uh, basically do online migrations or move, uh, you know, move, uh, um, yeah, shovel queues from one queue to a shovel. Sorry, me- events and messages from one queue to another queue. Uh, dead letter is a typical example. You want to, you've had a bunch of rejections uh, from the consumer. The events have been knacked. So there's also we don't need to dive into what a knack is, but you can imagine what it is. It's just like you're, you're not acknowledging a message has been delivered successfully. And, it, and you can then determine whether you want to queue or, or requeue or put it on the dead letter queue if there is a dead letter queue defined. So then you have all of your dead letter events. And often it's this happens when you release a new version of your application and you missed that some compatibility with the event and the consumer. You end up rejecting a bunch of events. You roll back your application. You're like, shit, okay, well, <laughs> that, that rollout's not good. Um, or you, you know, if you have a Spinnaker or some fancy CD, uh, pipeline and you can do this all automated based on uh, based on metrics that come from Prometheus and you know super fancy stuff and then um, okay you've rolled back but you fix your application with a bug fix you roll forward works and then you want to reprocess those events then you need RabbitMQ shovel to take it from the dead letter queue to the regular queue and it'll be processed again uh, in the order that you shoveled it from uh, from the dead letter queue uh, so that's a really cool uh, useful function uh, built into RabbitMQ, and you also have like stuff like federation. So if you have multiple versions of RabbitMQ in a distributed environment, you can also federate the events between them. All sorts of cool stuff like that. Uh, then you have like tier two uh, plugins, which are ones like Stream, which you mentioned mentioned before, uh, kind of incubator stuff, I guess you would call it. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, I, I, that is a really rich part of RabbitMQ. And Kafka does have somewhat the same, but from my experience, at least um, up until now, is that the this is still more driven by the providers and the hosts. So like from Karafka and from Confluence, they have their suites of uh, platform tooling, monitoring tooling, um, management tools, all for Kafka. They have like their own CLI interfaces like CC Cloud uh, for uh, for Confluent Clouds um, is a CLI tool, which allows you to basically maintain and manage Kafka brokers um, and, and, and Zookeeper as well, of course. And yeah, that, that, I guess that's a shame because, you know, you're choosing your provider going from Avian to uh, Confluence, you may, you're going to lose some tooling, you're going to lose some functionality and you have some, some to some degree vendor lock in there, uh, which is not ideal with RabbitMQ, you have less of that, uh, but you also have, I, I, I would say, you know, in certain, with a certain degree of confidence that you have less sophisticated tooling as a result, um, because it's not. It's still an open source uh, foundation, um, yeah. I and and you still have like you have Cloud AMDB and uh, and providers like this. I think they're also a sub branch of Avian. Um, 
But yeah, it, 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 I guess the investment there behind companies like Confluent, who you know went IPO two months ago and uh, a month ago, and uh, are doing pretty well, I guess. Um, you have more, yeah, more investment in the tooling and more more rich ecosystems as a result. But you have more vendor lock in. It's interesting that you mentioned the plugin ecosystem for RabbitMQ because I did see that um, you can add support for MQTT to RabbitMQ, which is an alternative um, message queue protocol. Okay. And um, one thing to consider is that these message queues are not being built greenfields all the time. So MQTT has a big adoption in like the IoT and embedded space. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps that's where RabbitMQ can find their, their niche or their customer base in sure people who have these old message systems and they want to maybe get some more modern features, mm-hmm. but they can't migrate off this old protocol. Mm-hmm. So they can transparently just, they can point their, um, their old infrastructure to a RabbitMQ queue and hopefully everything would work the same, but they might get some of the benefits that RabbitMQ um, offers. Yeah. So from that perspective, I think that Kafka is more like a all, all or nothing. You, you kind of have to, have to buy into Kafka if you want to have your have your system based on it. Mm-hmm. And so it might be difficult for other people to make that migration to Kafka than to RabbitMQ. Yeah, I say that, but th- th- there's also Kafka Connect, which is a project for bringing a bunch of connectors to Kafka. So you have connectors source and sync. So you have uh, ones that don't write data from Kafka partitions uh, to, to consumer sources. And then you also have ones that publish to, uh, to topics um, for, the so- for the sources. Sorry, syncs is the, is the, is the former. Um, there you can do like Postgres on either end, you can do RabbitMQ on either end, you can do ActiveMQ on either end, you can do Mongo on either end, like really the, there's a huge range of them. Um, yeah, may, maybe this is a good time to like, take a step back and, 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 and go over the kind of the basics of, of Kafka to show where the architectural distinctions are between Kafka and RabbitMQ. Um, so Kafka is like a persistent event log at the heart of things. Uh, it's offset and commit based, like what we talk about, talked about before with RabbitMQ streams. Um, you need to retain a an offset, uh, and you also then need to commit to it to say I've consumed the you know 100 more messages, and I'm at a thousand, so now I'm at a thousand one hundred. Um, yeah, taking it with a bit of pinch of salt, the following uh, topics are kind of equivalent to exchanges, um, in that this is where uh, a topic is essentially just, of course, a, a, an abstraction over a bunch of partitions, which is maintaining uh, a persistent event log. Um, but this is you know you your publishers they publish to a topic with a specific uh, key and uh, partitions are kind of equivalent to to queues. And why are the keys interesting? Well, partition keys are kind of similar to routing keys in RabbitMQ. Um, so partitioning is kind of your unit of concurrency in the Kafka world. Um, you have a topic and you have uh, 10 partitions. And in theory that the uh, load balancing algorithm in Kafka will balance the uh, we'll take the key that you give it. So maybe a key is let's say, let's say your your topic is um, is email addresses. Uh, sorry, is our emails. Uh, let's use the analogy again. It's quite a nice one. And your key is maybe the destination. Oh, let's say the receiver um, or destination email address. Then, uh, if you have ten partitions, then essentially what Kafka will do is it will hash the uh, the key, so the email address, the recipient, uh, with a consistent hash, and then it will balance to one of the 10 partitions. Um, why is that nice and interesting? Well, there is ordering guaranteed in the partition. If the if the user, uh, if you have two emails in the same recipient and one is sent one after another, well, they'll both be hashed to the same partition. Um, and so they'll be in order in that partition. The consumer will also then only consume in that order as well. 
So that means that you'll receive the emails as they were sent in order. It also means that that partition is always going to have one user's, one recipient's emails all in one partition as well. So if you want to just say, okay, replay me the, you know, this, this partition to get this user's information, then you can. Of course, it shares it with other recipients. So there'll be other email addresses that are hashed to the exact same bin. Of course, it's how hashing works. You have a, you know, you have a hash function, you have a key, and then you have a finite number of bins. Um, but yeah, that, that means that message can be sent by a producer to a particular topic politician will will append, append them in basically the same order. Now, here is kind of where it gets tricky. Scaling RabbitMQ and Kafka uh, are kind of, this is where they branch. Uh, in, and that's because at Kafka, you define consumer groups and Kafka only allows uh, one consumer per topic partition, uh, i.e. an instance of one application. But you can have multiple consumer groups still consuming from the same partitions, of course. Um, adding and removing partitions in Kafka is not as trivial as simply um, adding another queue in RabbitMQ. Um, because, as we mentioned before, the partition is essentially a unit of concurrency. Um, all of your events are going to be, for one user or one recipient, are going to be piped to that partition. What happens when you add an 11th partition? So you want to be able to scale up the number of consumers. So you want to add another partition another 10, whatever it is, well, you need to then rebalance across those partitions because now otherwise your hash function will always still just use the same previous 10 partitions. It will never use the 11th, so you're not gaining any extra concurrency there. Um, that means redefining topics, new, new partitions, a uh, number of partitions for that topic, piping all of the events from one to the other. As you can imagine, that's not as simple as just binding another queue to an exchange uh, or uh, scaling up the number of consumers on a queue even if you just care about the same queue, but you want more consumers, rather than queue, you just scale up. Uh, there's probably some contention you have between all many consumers trying to consume from the same queue. So uh, you can you can fiddle with this in Rabbit and Q. It's called QoS, quality of service. And this is basically saying, I want to batch this number of requests, uh, sorry, this number of messages in one request. So you're not really sending one event to one, one consumer. The, the consumer is actually uh, going to take from the queue a hundred at a time or whatever you define. You can take a thousand at a time or 10,000 at a time. That can give you, of course, greater efficiency because you have less network overhead in actually setting up within the channel um, requests for more events. You do it in one big batch. Now this is, so Kafka just is not um, notorious, I would say, for scaling, just it's trickier. So if you want to elastically scale, Adding and removing partitions elastically in Kafka, you know, from let's say a peak load at, at 10 o'clock in the morning till 10.30, you want to scale down, you want to scale up to from 10 to 100 partitions, you want to scale down from 100 to 10, not easy. Like that's not a, that's not really a thing. It's not a common use case you see people use Kafka for. So you need to project ahead of time what your peak load's probably going to look like. Um, and that requires you have a, you know, magic mystical ball. You take maybe how many, what's, what's our peak load been in the past? How much do we think we can grow? Uh, in the future, what are our SLAs for applications? You know, you will have, if you wanted to stay on the same number of partitions, you don't care about scaling, you, can, you will just have some, you have consumer lag at peak load. Um, are you able to tolerate the consumer lag? Say if a thousand users, a hundred thousand users come into your app all at once, uh, they'd queue some events. Is it okay if now that is going to take half an hour to process all those events? Uh, or do you always need to maintain a sub one minute SLA for your event processing? It's just a question that is going to be asked, you need to ask about when you define number of partitions or whether you even choose Kafka to begin with for your solution. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that's, that's one of the reasons why it's uh, 
there's a real difference maker between when you use Rabbit and Q and Kafka specifically for event passing like this. Mm. And and that scaling of Kafka, I guess it's important to 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 say that that's only one of the many different um, scaling op- options you have available in that in that case. Mm. So you can also just add more consumers and. It, it just means that the time that it takes to submit a new message might be slightly slower. Yeah. But that you can still have a throughput of in like the million, depending on how you've architected your application, that can still mean a, a throughput, throughput of multi millions of messages per second, depending yeah, on, exactly. on, on how you're uh, consumption or, or how you're sort of um, distributing them across across consumers. Yeah, it's a good point. Like write, write, write throughput and then actually read throughput is going to be two, two uh, completely disjoint um, problems. and. In your email example, well, you can still write a hundred thousand emails a second, but maybe you can only you can only process a finite, a fixed number based on the number of partitions. Is it okay if your users have slow emails because of there's been a peak load of, uh, of emails that come through? That's just the innate problem of uh, yeah defining an SLA or an SL uh, probably an SLO uh, would be more accurate. I think for for the benefit of the, of the listeners, I just want to mention that a lot of these um, asynchronous top asynchronous concepts fall out of the problem of the producer consumer problem mm-hmm. and so this idea of like acknowledgements and mm-hmm. the synchronization between producers and consumers um, it might seem if you're working with like a reactive library or you're working with um, Kafka mm-hmm. or AbbMQ, you, you see these concepts like NAC and uh, on ready and like on um, complete and all of these different signals mm-hmm. and a lot of those come from the synchronization between producer and consumer yeah. and so the the better you can synchronize producers and consumers, the higher your throughput will be because they spend less time in sort of waiting or, or in, sh- in a shared buffer that's like closer to the problem statement. And so if, if our readers, if the listeners are interested, uh, they can look up the producer-consumer problem in their own time and that, and that might help them understand uh, reactive streams and also a lot of this um, delivery guarantee uh, semantics. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting. Actually, RabbitMQ has another tool in its tool belt, which is a load tester for brokers. Um, it's it's really just testing the um, the throughput you can achieve from RabbitMQ, like by synthesizing your usage of it. It's not even you know you're not you're not load testing your infrastructure with your applications at either end. You're just testing Kafka, uh, RabbitMQ because you care about okay, what happens if I tweak. QoS for these consumers from 100 to 1,000. How does that then affect throughput? Like these are complex questions. Like you mentioned, the producer and consumer problem of getting this kind of harmony of uh, of throughput is not an easy or it's not a solved problem. Um, so there's a lot of empirical testing as well that you need to do. In okay, I have a broker. It uh, has the you know these uh, AWS instances as two replicas. Um, it uses quorum queues, uh, and I want to see how much throughput I can gain for this event with this payload of this size, with this routing keys uh, and the N number of consumers with the QoS of uh, 10,000, uh, which is of course crazy that you're going to request 10,000 messages at the same time uh, at once for each consumer. But that's, you know, understanding what its limits are, like that's going to really help you design uh, your proper infrastructure and also the basically parameters that you need to use for for Kafka, for, for RabbitMQ. And it, that's the... And so many things can affect that that performance. So at some point, the reliability of the network infrastructure that you're sending message over will have an impact on how many messages you can send through. Yeah. So whether or not your applications are geographically centralized or whether you're 
consuming messages across like maybe the Atlantic Ocean or something, mm. um, getting the, the consistency or the reliability of that. If TCP has to work more harder to get your to guarantee that your packet gets there, mm. um, then you're gonna you're not gonna be able to batch uh, messages as effectively, um, and your throughput will be slightly lower. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and in, in, very interesting one. Like you know, we often use the dummy case of okay, you have a really simple setup. It's all the single availability zone. RabbitMQ cluster with three uh, three nodes and a replica set, um, but yeah, like multi multi DC architectures uh, using the RabbitMQ federation to send messages across uh, uh, across distribution um, distribution centers. I'm talking about uh, picnic here, uh, uh, data centers. Um, yeah, like indeed, all of these parameters are gonna are gonna play a very very important role in in the quality of service and the the, the throughput that you achieve. Do you think that um, message queues have gotten the widespread adoption now rather than earlier because we've had a slowdown in Moore's law or at least in single chip performance speed? So the, the, fact, the fact of application collaboration becomes more important than necessarily single threaded, uh, you know, vertical, sca vertical scaling mm -hmm. type of uh, performance. We're, we're now trying to optimize for the horizontal case. Yeah, indeed, I do see. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, I have to remember. We're also we talk about philosophy sometimes on the <laughs> on the podcast, but uh, yeah, interesting question. Um, you do see, I guess, RabbitMQ and Kafka are also being used to um, move away from this uh, orchestrated. Uh, let's say, yeah, let's let's keep it orchestrated. But like, it could be REST, could be gRPC, could be everything, anything. Um, direct invocation mechanism to something asynchronous with a workload with a work work queue. Sorry, so you you do see it used for work queuing, um, absolutely. And you know, uh, systems like Akka, for example, are kind of born in this area of uh, of using queue event uh, queuing systems for this reason um, to scale like this. And also, Akka, of course, has its own concurrency model as well to try and achieve higher throughput on the the application. But you also have broker implementation so you also have uh, like let's say handoff brokers where you can hand off the brokering of messages specifically for work queuing purposes uh, and you also see for reactive for example reactive programming you have rsocket and rsocket has also rsocket broker which is a centralized broker for all things uh, reactive message passing and so if you want you know, to build reactive applications that's great um, but indeed maybe your underlying philosophy that this is all REST-based, uh, let's say, direct, directly orchestrated, um, only scales so far. Uh, or uh, you have other constraints on how you can elastically scale. Maybe startup time is important, but we, just, we discussed this last time or a few, few uh, episodes ago with GraalVM, how that can possibly solve uh, problems around uh, elasticity of your application. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think there... Uh, it has been used for this. Uh, I don't know whether, yeah, you, you mentioned like Moore's law slowdown. I don't know whether that's the uh, real cause um, or whether it's just the inherent workload on a developer to also achieve, you know, micro level optimizations within an application uh, can be better mitigated by using a work queue um, to say, okay, well, you know, we can't expect every engineer to write the most performant uh, C10K uh, you know, level uh, level rest service. Um, but what we can expect is to give them the tools or, you know, from them is to be able to use the tools like a work queue, RabbitMQ or Kafka or whatever you want to use to, to sort of, yeah, to, to um, shovel 
work to, to basically side put it on the side and then allow their application to consume it as fast as possible. I think I think it's more of that philosophy um, that's driving that that not so much that there's um, slowdown. Although it's interesting, like are there is there a space for like hardware accelerators for message queues? And maybe there maybe there are, but you know, what I'm trying to think now in a modern um, computer architecture, um, which peripheral, which uh, no peripherals, but which you know. Um, which devices on a computer can lend itself the best to a queuing behavior? Uh, probably not a graphics card. Probably, uh, probably CPU is probably the best the best place to do this computation. But are there are there actually a, is there a space for hardware accelerators here, or maybe there are, and we do use them. I just don't know about them. The fact is that I/O is usually your biggest bottleneck with mm. when you're developing an application, and so it because there's so much I/O involved in message queues. You, they really only start to become attractive when your um, timescales are in the hundreds of milliseconds already, in which case the, the time to consume messages and, and send them becomes neg- negligible. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing processing that takes on the order of 30 minutes or an hour, or even yeah, if you have machine learning mm-hmm. applications that take half a day to train, mm-hmm. um, then, that, then that message queue makes sense. But my intuition would be that if you're running, um, if you're running a very performant program that needs to run that operates on the nanoseconds or in, in, in less than 100 milliseconds, I think that the queuing paradigm becomes less important. And you might have internal queuing like within, within the CPU, you've got the control bus, but then they start to look more like buses and less like, messi- less like messages. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I guess we're, we're bringing it back around to, to the beginning now where messages just seem to be a very good solution to a multiplex problem. So like when you're developing desktop applications, a lot of the you know the event-driven user interactions, like when you click a button, yeah. that usually if if you work with some of like the old Windows APIs or even like Unix, um, those surface as signals to the program, and you can mm-hmm. you're basically subscribing to an operating system level yeah. uh, event queue. Yeah, yeah definitely, and, and and that's also that there's many there is the 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 category of of event processing, but they do them you know these these event message brokers they implement them in such different ways like for example Acker, Acker as the concurrency model the the parents um there is a hierarchy built into this and there's no real hierarchy built into like rabbitmq like, the producer is not responsible for the success uh, or the error codes or the error response of their children uh, whereas in Acker, you do have that kind of structure but we would nonetheless probably call them put them in a single box but actually they do things just uh, just inherently differently um, so it's a very rich space. There's like tons of different, uh, yeah, tons of different uh, options out there. Like, I think, uh, I think there's probably going to be more categories grow. Like, you know, Spawn, as we've seen, like streaming, uh, streaming SQL is something that's on the rise now. Um, there's going to be tons more, and they're all kind of founded in this uh, this event processing world. Um, yeah, super exciting. I know that's within Picnic queuing systems and event processing is very core to how we accomplish what we do. So we might even uh, return to this topic at some point in the future. Definitely the idea of consensus, I think at some point would be really nice to cover, but uh, thanks for sharing all of your, your expertise and your thoughts today. Yeah, no, thanks Reagan for the like really interesting uh, like overview of the space and, and the use cases. And you had me thinking as well a lot about the, yeah, just the uh, the vast immensity of, the, of this area in tech and um, how important it is. Till next time. Cheers Reagan, bye bye.